0: morning, everybody. Isn't that song beautiful? I absolutely love it. And the passage we're about to go into today, it it gives it even more meaning. So, uh, yeah, thank you, worship team. That was that was wonderful. So, again, good morning, everyone. So glad to be with you all today, continuing in our series in Second Corinthians. You know, every time I get the opportunity to open God's word and share the beauty of Scripture I'm always blown away. I'm always blown away just by the the deep, profound truths that radiate off of every word every time. And every time I preach, I think the people around me get slightly annoyed uh, with how passionate I get talking about these passages. Uh, For instance... I'll I'll read a passage and I'll go to someone and be like, wow, this is the most intense truth you have ever heard in your entire life. Or this changed my life so drastically, it better change your life too. That's, That's just how I am. I get really passionate about the word. Now, is there anything wrong with being passionate and desiring for people's lives to change? Well, absolutely not, right? However, Sometimes I tend to be one that can uh, slightly, maybe just a little bit over-exaggerate almost everything that I say. Uh, Maybe just a little bit. Those of you that know me know that this is true. I can tell you what I'm about to say is not an over-exaggeration at all. The verses we're about to study today are literally some of the deepest, most intense, most beautiful verses in scripture in regard to what it is as believers our lives should be about. These verses are so profound that they actually point to our entire purpose on this planet. It points to not only the meaning of our lives, but to the meaning in everything that we do. It brings into play what it means to be a Christian. It brings into play what it means uh, that what it is that we believe, and why it is that we believe those things. So if this doesn't pique your interest at this point, I don't know what would if you're not hyped up and ready to go for these verses. (laughs) Because that's a whole lot of truth crammed into four little tiny verses. And I was supposed to preach on chapter 5, verse 11 through 21, but halfway through the week, Dan and I talked, and we're like, nope. No, can't do it. That is. There's way too much truth. There's way too much theology here to to try to cram it all in one spot. So so this week we're going to go through eleven through fifteen, um, and then uh, down the road in a couple weeks we'll we'll finish off this this chunk with sixteen through twenty one. So we titled this series "Compelled." The series compelled, and every time every sermon up to this point has given us the opportunity to reflect on what it is that truly compels us in our life. What is it that drives you? What is it that, that gets you up in the morning? What is it that keeps you pushing on when life is difficult, when life gets hard? The series has has really made me take a step back and ask the question in my own life. So, as a professional Christian, someone told me that once, and I thought it was actually kind of funny. Um, someone whose job it is to share the good news of Jesus, and having the uh, the thing that that every week the MC says, I'm pretty sure I didn't hear it this service. I'm pretty sure Dan said it though in last service and the ser- the service before. We have a mission to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus. And our passion is that people know who Jesus is, they grow in their knowing, and they go and tell others. So as someone who lives for these truths, the things that compel me can sometimes turn business-minded versus heart-minded. Sometimes it can turn flesh focus versus spiritual focus. So the ministry can start looking more like a job than a passion, being compelled to succeed rather than to serve. So thinking through this the last few months, um, especially after studying this passage we're going to be going through today, I discovered a plethora of other things compelling me outside of the one true thing that should be compelling me. So I'm sure most of you can resonate with this list as I go through it. Family compels me. Stuff at times compels me. Accomplishment compels me. Passion compels me. So none of these things I just said are bad. It's when they become the focus. When these things become the focus, they can turn the tide in my heart, and not just mine, but all of our hearts taking our minds off of the main thing and the main point. When we get to the center of the one thing that should truly compel us, we see that everything else in our lives, everything falls underneath it. This main compelling force, it leads us in everything. It leads us in the the way that we work. It leads us in our family. It leads us in the things that we have. It leads us in our passion. This thing that compels us actually, as I said before, brings into play the purpose of each and every one of our lives. So this morning, I have two questions I want you to be thinking about as we go through this service. Number one is, what is it that truly compels you? And I know throughout this series, you've heard this a lot. Um, I'm pretty sure every single sermon someone has said something along these lines of, what is it that truly compels you? But this morning, I want you to dig deep. I want you to truly dig deep and figure out what it is that compels you. What is it that gets you up in the morning? And then number two, after you've pinpointed what it is that compels you, what do the things that compel you tell you About your heart and your relationship with the Lord. All right, let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord God, we just come before you so grateful and so thankful for who you are. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come together, to worship you, to honor you, to learn more about you. God, I pray that as this passage has changed my perspective that Lord you would help just change the hearts and lives of every person in this room to realize what it is that should truly compel them. God, I pray that not one person would leave this room today without being changed and growing closer to you. We love you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so before we dive into our passage for today, we need to take a minute as we do every week uh, to talk about the book, As a whole, up to this point, so we can have proper context of what's being said um, as we dive into these first few verses. So in the book of 2 Corinthians, up to this point, Paul, who's writing to the church of Corinth, has uh, been pleading with them to not follow the false teachings of the Judaizers. These, These false teachers, these false prophets, he's been pleading with them not to fall into it. And they've been falling into these lies. That's why he had to write to them. He wants to make sure that the Corinthian church knows that he and this ministry are not a sham. Because they were saying, this guy, he, he can't be who he says he is because he has nothing. He doesn't have status. The Corinthian church was all, all about status. It was about things and stuff. Does that remind you of any culture you guys know? So the Corinthian church, being all about things and stuff and status, they looked at Paul and said, no, 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 sir, you cannot be truly from God, because if that was the case, you would also, like we the Corinthians, have things and status. You would not be shipwrecked. You would not be beaten and bruised and thrown in prison. That makes no sense, so therefore, what you teach is false. And Paul is pleading with them to listen and to realize it's not about things and stuff, that he and the ministry are not a sham. So this concept runs throughout, the, uh, it runs throughout the book, along with a handful of other things. There's, there's exhortations, uh, there's encouragements, there's counsel for the church. And all these things are tied together with the one main thought, the one melodic line that Paul is trying to get across to this wayward church. And that is, what is it that compels him? And what should compel this church in Corinth? And what should compel every Christian throughout time? That's the main point that he is trying to get through uh, throughout this book. So for these people, in their culture, in their society, a huge compulsion or driving force, as I said previously, is status. Losing sight of the one and only thing that should truly drive them all while they're they're questioning if Paul was even telling the truth about the things that he shared because of their opinions on this status. So where we're beginning this morning in 5.11, it plops us down directly into the thick of it with Paul going back into a posture of defending. So this defense that he's going into, it's not necessarily for himself, but the truth with which he and the ministry have shared with this church so verse 11 says this, therefore, okay, cool, everyone stop reading. Hopefully you've, you've been able to keep up up to this point. we got to stop here at this therefore, though. Um, so as you've heard so many times from this stage, anytime you see a therefore, you must... Yeah, look back and see what's there for. Cool. Some of you have been paying attention. Um, so this specific therefore points us back to a piece of what Pastor Jake was preaching on last week, and that's verses 6 through 10. So let's take a look um, back at those verses and discover what it is this therefore is there for. It says this, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So always in good courage, whether home in the body or away with the Lord, we desire to please him. In everything we do, we desire to please him. So we aim to please him for, for so many reasons. But what Paul is saying here is that we desire to please him because all of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ will stand before the Lord at the bema seat, or as in this, in this translation says, judgment seat. And this is for the good and the bad to be exposed, as it says. So We need to understand, though, that this is for the sake of reward, not condemnation. This is good and bad. The good and bad here are are referencing the good things that we have done for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, and honoring the Lord. And the, the bad here is the worthless things that don't matter. So this is important to remember as Paul was writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is reminding us that our evil sins were taken care of on the cross altogether. And when we stand before the Lord, it's not for condemnation. So this is also very important. This little section right here is really important because it informs our therefore in verse 11. So continuing on in verse 11, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And in other translations, it's it's men or people. So therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others or men or people. So therefore, because we will stand before the Lord in the end, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So the next detail we need to break down here is understanding this fear of the Lord that Paul is talking about. It's really important that we understand this fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord does not mean fear of final judgment. It's all it all comes together. And so it's it's important to know this. The fear of the Lord does not mean fear of final judgment. This is referencing the judgment scene. This is referencing the seat, as we discussed previously. So we're not scared of the final judgment because we're secure. The fear of the Lord here is, is not fear, it's it's godly awe, it's reverence, it's devotion. The way Paul would have been bringing it to the church is in the context of Proverbs 9.10, which says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Acts 9.31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So as we can see from this passage, again, we're shown an example of a fear of the Lord that actually produces comfort. This fear of the Lord actually produces peace. So knowing this fear of the Lord, Paul desires to persuade others. So just to take it back for a second, when we look back at the passages that, that Pastor Jake talked about, we see Paul is talking about the judgment seat, the Bema seat, for, for believers, those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So this, this, this Bema seat that we're looking back to, Paul is saying, therefore, understanding this, this judgment seat, understanding we will stand before the Lord, we need to recognize What we are doing. Corinthians, don't fall away. Corinthians, listen to sound truth. Because when we stand before the Lord at the end, we want Him to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. We want to live our lives for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. So, knowing all of this, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing Paul desires to persuade men, we need to understand what it is Paul is trying to persuade men for. So, knowing the fear of the Lord, is he persuading men to come to the to come to know the Lord in a salvific way? Let's look back at verse one. One says, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia." So, the book here, as as I talked about previously, is to the church of God at Corinth. So, this is to believers. This being the case, Paul is persuading the people he is right about the truths he has spoken to them. There's so many truths that Paul was trying to get across here. The truths of the good news of Jesus. The truths of the way that that we as believers should live our lives. The truths of living our lives for the sake of Jesus and the sake of others. And the truth of living for the glory of God. So he's persuading the church of him and those he's working for, their their integrity. They're worried about the Corinthians falling away from sound teaching. They don't want them to fall away from the truth, which is going to affect the earlier discussion of the Bema seat reward. They don't want them to stand before the Lord and everything that they've done just to be worthless. Paul is saying, I want you to be sharing this good news. I want you to be out there. Don't fall into what these false teachers are saying. This right here, it leads us um, directly into the next thought in verse 11, which is, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. So Paul right here, he's, he's basically saying, hey, we're well known to God. God knows what we're saying. Every word of what we're saying, God knows this. He knows we're speaking the truth, and I pray that you look inside yourselves, search your conscience, and know that it's true as well. Know what will happen at the end. Fear the Lord, honor him, and in the midst of this, search yourselves and know that what we're saying is true. Turn your lives around. Stop living for yourselves and live for the sake of Jesus and others. Paul continues on with this theme of persuading in verse 12, saying this, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So Paul writes so that the Corinthians can respond to these false teachers in regards to himself in the ministry. And most of all, the truth that he and the ministry are sharing. So right here, Paul's trying to say, hey, listen, Corinthians, we're not trying to boast in ourselves. Yes, we're saying we are well known to God. We're saying we are telling the truth. But you have to understand, we're not doing this for our own good. We're doing this for you. We want you to know and believe what we're saying. So you'll have ammunition against these false teachers who are saying that it's all about appearance. It's not about appearance, but it's about the heart. The false teachers are boasting about everything external. They're boasting about appearance. They're boasting about wealth. But God looks at the heart. Our ministry should show you that what we're saying is true. Look at our heart. Look at how we have loved you. Stop worrying about the externals and ask God to change your heart. So we see right here, we see Paul's heart bleeding out for these people. So desperately worried about them, no matter what they've done to him, and they have done a lot. He's never going to stop pursuing them. He's never going to stop loving them. He he, he loves them enough that he wants to remind them consistently and encourage them of truth. Which brings us into the last verse before we get into uh, one of the most beautiful passage I, passages I think has been written. Verse 13 says, For if we are beside ourselves, is for God. If we are in our right mind, is for you. So Paul was making the point here. He's pointing out to the critics, Yeah, I'm dogmatic and passionate and fiery. And just real quick, this beside ourselves in verse 13 is actually like crazy, like nuts. For if we're crazy, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. It's all for God. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of truth, for the sake of the kingdom, he's going to do whatever it takes, even if he looks nuts. It's all for God. He was crazy in the world's eyes. He sacrificed everything, including bodily harm for the sake of Jesus and others. In the world's eyes, this is crazy. But it's all for God. On the other end of it, though, for the sake of the Corinthians in defending himself in the ministry, he's also sober-minded, all again for the sake of the gospel. At the beginning, I had talked about how passionate I get, and as I read this, I feel I could resonate with Paul here. Uh, there's a time and a place, and you need to know your audience. Paul wants them all to know that, that this passion that he has is for God this passion that leads him into a a radical commitment to living for Jesus in the sake of others, even if he looks crazy. But on the other end of it, with the defectors and the lost, he's going to compose himself for their sake. So it's hard to balance, actually, I think. For me, it is anyway. For instance, what we're about to go into—just a warning—I'm about to get fiery crazy. That's just—I feel like this is the right audience for that, though, so I think it's okay. Uh, But there's been times that that sort of passion on my end has turned people off to what I'm saying uh, because they don't understand my enthusiasm. They're like, "Wow, this guy—you can stop talking about Jesus now. You can stop screaming about him in my face now." Uh, But it it is—it's a hard balance because we get so passionate. But Paul here is saying. I want to be able to do both, all for the sake of you and the good news of Jesus. So now we get to go into verse 14, which says this, For the love of Christ controls us, or compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So all that was said previously, everything that was said previously, hangs on this four. All that Paul had been trying to get across and the main theme he's getting at starts with this simple three-letter word, for. You Corinthians, we love you. We've shared the good news with you and we're going to keep doing it until the end of time. We're moved to tears, we're moved to fight for or because the love of Christ compels us. Jesus' beautiful love this love that went to the cross for us to take our place. We deserve death. We deserve nothing. And Jesus, in his unending loving kindness, was the substitute. He was the propitiation. Jesus was the only one who could take the full wrath of God for sin, and he did for our sake. This is the love. This is the love that gives us purpose. It gives us mission. It gives us drive. It gives us a desire for holiness, a desire to get rid of, by God's grace, our sinful ways. His never-giving-up, unchanging, always-and-forever love. This love, right here, is what compels us. The dictionary definition for compel is to drive or urge irresistibly. So this unexplainable love drives us with the irresistible urge. When we understand what it is Jesus has done for us, it creates an irresistible compulsion to go out and share the good news with others. It reminds me of, I don't know how many of you have seen Star Wars. If you haven't, I'm really sorry. It's really sad. Uh, But in Star Wars, there's something called a tractor beam. You have the Millennium Falcon coming in, and then all of a sudden they're being pulled in, and they can't go anywhere, and they they have to turn the engines off because the tractor beam is pulling them in. There's nothing they can do. That is exactly what I think about when it comes to this compulsion. You can't escape it, and we don't want to escape it when we understand. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, right here, Paul tells those who have already been saved by the gospel to stand in it, to hold fast to it. Don't ever forget it. This is being compelled by the love of Christ. It compels us because, the verse continues, we have concluded one has, one has died for all. Stop there. So Jesus, the substitutionary sacrifice, died for all, as the verse says. This is something we as Christians talk about all the time. But do we fully grasp the magnitude of the first part of this verse so far? Our lives should be fully driven in every way by the unexplainable love of Jesus. The God of the universe laid down his life for you. He died for you so that you could be back in a right relationship with him. The gospel we talk about every single week. The good news of Jesus should never, ever become old news to us. It should be what we base every single decision, every conversation, and every aspect of our lives on. If we think through from the very beginning, you go to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. God creates everything. Man messes up. We sin. And do you know how long it takes God to create a rescue plan for us? immediately. Genesis 3.15 is the proto-gospel. It's the first time the gospel is mentioned. It's the very first time. So we see this God loves us so much when we deserve absolutely nothing that he is willing to put a rescue plan together for us to be back in a right relationship with him. It's absolutely beautiful when you think about it. I've had people tell me before uh, to stop talking about the gospel and talk about something else. There's so much in the Bible. Like, Stephen, look at this giant book right here. There's more to it than the gospel. Talk about something else. And I will always emphatically disagree with every fiber of my being. So, yes, Scripture has everything in it for life and godliness. We know this. And, yes, we should teach verse by verse through all of it. However, every single time I teach Every single lesson that I produce will always and forever have the gospel laced. Because as we see in this deeply profound few words, it's Jesus' love that compels us. Because of what he did for us. Therefore, every word that comes out of my mouth should be a representation of that compulsion. Isaiah 53, 4-12 says this. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, It was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a breakdown of everything we believe. Jesus, God, the perfect sacrifice, had to die on the cross and rise again for our sake. So we could be back in a right relationship with him. As I've said several times already in the sermon, but I think it's, it's worth repeating, God did not have to do this for us. We deserve nothing. I think in our American culture, we get so caught up in we deserve or I need or I want that, that we get this, this mindset put in place that even with, even with what Jesus did, like, oh, yeah, yeah, he did that. Okay. I, I deserve that, though, right? I'm an American. I deserve it. We deserve absolutely not one thing, but God did it for us anyway. but it's this perfect love for all of us messed up sinners that compelled Jesus to go to the cross to be the ultimate sacrifice. When I thought about this, it it actually blew my mind a little bit to think through that Jesus was driven and compelled for us to be back in a right relationship with him for his glory to go to the cross. So when we talk about what should compel us, this love of Jesus should compel us because we were what compelled him. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, Romans 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we might live with him. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Uh, When I first put this sermon together, I sent the draft over to Dan, and uh, one of the notes that he on, had on there was, remove a majority of the scriptures. So just so you know, this is only like 10% of the scripture I had down, so you're welcome that I'm not just going to stand up here reading to you the whole time. No, but but in all honesty, though, the amount of scripture that defends this, that pushes us to understand the cross is is insane, when we understand that from the beginning of Genesis to the end of this is Jesus at the heart, you can't see Scripture any other way than to see the beauty of what we're talking about right now. Because of this, we are compelled. Because of, of all we just saw, all throughout Scripture, we live our lives. We find our purpose. We find our passion. So the verse continues on saying, Therefore, all have died. So by Christ's death, the penalty for sin has been paid. And those who place their faith and trust in Jesus are now dead to their old selves. They are made alive in Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin that grace may abound? By no means. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So because of that sacrifice, because of the belief in what what he did for us, the sinful life we had is dead. The new has come. From here, Paul goes right into verse 15, continuing this, this profound truth, saying, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this is the second time in a few words that Paul is making the point that Christ died for all. However, this isn't the same context as the previous verse. The first time in verse 14, Paul was referencing salvation. He died so that we might be made new. The second push is talking about life after being made new. The love of Christ compels us because of the sacrifice for us. The love of Christ compels us, therefore we live for him. We're going to live showing the world this driving force behind our lives so that you can share with the world this driving force. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you realize what he did for you, realize you are made alive because he died for you. And being compelled by his love, we no longer desire to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. We are compelled by his love. He died for all so that we could die to our old sinful selves and be made new. And that we no longer want to live the way that we used to, but for him. As we close today, think through all that we just talked about. I want to circle back to the two questions that we discussed at the beginning. Number one is, what is it that compels you? And knowing what compels you, what does your heart and your relationship with the Lord look like? So after going through these powerful verses, can you truly say that it's the love of Christ that compels you? Or is it the love of something else? Knowing what Christ did for you, are you compelled, are you driven to make your entire life about the Lord and what he did for you? Does your work reflect this? Does your speech reflect this? Do your relationships reflect this? They don't, it may be time to take a hard look in the spiritual mirror and ask why. Now, I am in no way saying this is easy. This is not one of those easy things that we can just go, yes, I am now perfect, and I am compelled in every single way. That's. It's not like that. We're still messed up sinful people. What I am trying to point out, though, is to think through in your life what is it that compels you, and should you be rethinking the things that compel you? Should you be rethinking what it is that gets you up in the morning? And if it's not this love that compels you, you should be thinking about that and why that is the case. Have you lost sight of the beautiful truth that was laid before us this morning? If this is you, I, I pray that these passages are going to burn a new fire in you a new passion for the sake of the Lord and others. I pray that that as you leave here today, this will be such a beautiful reminder for you of our purpose here on this planet, the thing that should be driving us. Are you sitting here this morning, um, or maybe you're sitting here this morning and realize you don't actually have a true relationship with the Lord. You're listening to what I'm saying and going, wow, this is, how, how could you be compelled by it, this Jesus guy? Like, okay, yeah, so he died 2,000 years ago. Why? why do? You, why should I care about this? If that's you sitting here right now that you don't truly know if you have a relationship with the Lord, do not leave here today without talking to someone about it. This is the most important truth you could ever hear, you could ever know. And if you don't know it, you need to know it. There's people back at the Connect desk. There's pastors all over the place. I'm just going to point out, Dan's sitting right there. So you can go talk to Dan afterwards. If you don't know where you are at with the Lord, do not leave here without knowing. If you're living your life compelled, if you are living your life this way, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Press on. Press on as Paul did for the sake of of the Lord's glory, for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. Keep going. Life gets hard. It's tough. Being compelled by the love of Jesus, the world does not like that. When we're talking about him, just like with Paul, Paul was beaten, bruised, shipwrecked, everything you could possibly imagine. That's the reason he had to write this book, was to go back and defend this truth Defend what it is that compels him because everyone thought he was crazy. Even if the world thinks you're crazy, keep going. I encourage you to keep going. Keep trusting the Lord. Church, I pray today that we will all live compelled. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that you gave me just to open it up. Um, as messed up as I am, Lord, um, that uh, I'm able to, you are able to speak through me and uh, use your words to to change lives. So, God, I pray this morning. If there's anyone sitting in here that does not truly know you, God, that you would um, you would move in their hearts, in their minds. God, I pray that you would bug them until they ask the question. Until they know who you are, God, I pray that you would change hearts and minds and lives today, and that each and every one of us would wake up desiring to live compelled for you. God, that our driving force, our relationships, our families, everything we do would reflect you. Lord, we love you, and we praise you for all you do in Jesus' name.